Joining me now to debate this are Jamal Khashoggi, a prominent Saudi journalist and former royal family advisor, currently self-exiled in Washington, D.C., who has said the crown prince is acting like Putin and becoming Saudi's own supreme leader. Uh, why are you in quote-unquote self-exile? Explain that to our viewers. Simply because I don't want to be arrested. That's Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi on the Al Jazeera program Upfront a year ago. He says he was afraid of getting arrested. But he didn't really foresee how much danger he was really in. I'm Ifyaz Tayeb, and this is The Take. It's been over six months since Khashoggi's mysterious murder in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And there are still a lot of questions without answers. Today, we want to revisit a couple of conversations we had here on The Take shortly after Khashoggi was killed. One of those conversations was with Salah Negum. Salah is the director of news for Al Jazeera's English Channel. And this wasn't just another story for him. Uh, I knew him as a colleague. I met him several times uh, in different places and different networks. And uh, I respect his uh, journalism very much and his character. He was a very kind person and uh, very nice to deal with. Khashoggi left Saudi Arabia last year as the government began its recent crackdown on dissent, arresting clerics, intellectuals, activists and businessmen. Uh, the first thing you think, it might have been a misunderstanding. He went out, no one saw him. Uh, I think the second day or the third day, we realized that there is something hugely wrong that happened. The Washington Post broke the story of Khashoggi's disappearance in Istanbul, but it took a few days for the worldwide media to pick it up. And that's when the leaks began. They were mostly coming from Turkish officials and state-owned media in Turkey. Well, pretty much uh, certain, according to the sources that have spoken to Al Jazeera, Martin, um, the police officials here, as well as other uh, security apparatuses are, indeed looking at this as a murder investigation. All those leaks were pointing to the same conclusion, that Khashoggi was dead. Turkish officials started talking, off the record, about the existence of audio recordings and of live streams of the killing from inside the Saudi consulate. They said there was a bone saw, a body double, they also released pictures of what's alleged to be a 15-man Saudi assassination squad arriving at Istanbul's airport. The original lineup was first published in the Turkish pro-government Sabah newspaper. The New York Times says it's identified that some of them may have links to Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman. At first, the Saudis denied it all. Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he's often called, said Khashoggi had left alive. But with every new piece of information, Saudi officials kept changing their story. Until... Hello, Adrian Finnegan here in Doha. The top story is this hour on Al Jazeera. The Saudi prosecutor's office says the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi was premeditated. There were pieces of information coming from several sources. Uh, Turkish security sources... Turkish political sources, some information coming from Saudi Arabia, reactions from the United States, and we have to follow all that. Al Jazeera Arabic has been following those sources too. Reporter Tamer Al-Mashal has been spending a lot of time in Istanbul. 
talking with Turkish officials, looking at documents, and putting names to the Saudi Arabian officials directly involved. Maher Abdelaziz Al-Matrib, the head of the HIT squad, and Salah Al-Tubayqi, a forensic expert believed to have been responsible for later dismembering Khashoggi's body. Also involved was the head of Saudi intelligence in Istanbul, Ahmed Abdullah Al-Muzayni. Former Turkish intelligence officer Metin Ersoz explained to Tamer what they've learned. What he's saying here is that the Turkish government says Mutreb ran the whole operation and that Mutreb committed the murder. The rest of the team was tasked with erasing the evidence. Tamer also spoke with Hatice Changiz about what happened that fateful day in October. Hatice was Jamal Khashoggi's fiance. I honestly never imagined myself in this situation. I haven't taken it in yet. I'm sitting here talking to you about what happened, but no words can describe it. How did the story with you and Jamal Khashoggi start? I met Jamal at a conference in 2018 and did a short interview with him. I'm a researcher, and I emailed him. He told me that he was planning to come to Istanbul and that he wanted to meet me. That's how it started. Our conversations weren't just about politics and public affairs. We wanted to get to know each other more. That's when it started to get serious. He left Turkey with the intention of taking a serious step in our relationship. And then he came back to make arrangements for us to get married. Did you agree on a wedding date? Yes. We were planning to go to the municipality right after picking up the document from the embassy. An application had been submitted. We'd already bought our apartment and started furnishing it. We were planning to get things done the same week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Monday. They were planning for a day that never came. And still, the simplest question, what happened to Jamal Khashoggi's body, can't be laid to rest. When a CBS reporter asked top Saudi diplomat Adel Al-Juber where Khashoggi's body is now, this is what he said. We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? We don't know. They said that the, uh, the public prosecutor is working to try to establish this fact. We have asked for evidence from Turkey, and he asked them several times formally through formal legal channels to provide evidence. We are still waiting to receive any evidence they may have. You're blaming the Turkish government? No, I'm blaming the murderers who committed this crime. The U.S. Congress and the CIA say Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, was directly involved. But President Trump has never gone along with that. And it's something the Saudi government denies. The Crown Prince, we know, did not order this. This was not a government-sanctioned operation. We have an investigation and we have a trial. And uh, many things have been put out that turned out to be incorrect. Saudi Arabia indicted 11 suspects and plans to execute five of them. But officials won't say who they are. The United Nations is calling for these trials to be open to the public. It's still unclear what will happen. But the image of a journalist murdered and disposed of with a bone saw has seriously tainted Mohammed bin Salman's image after his very recent rise to power. The real measure is going to come when we see if the initial backlash leads to practical policy changes
that hurt the well-being of Saudi Arabia. Rami Khoury is one of the most knowledgeable Middle East analysts out there. He's been a journalist for nearly 50 years. The Washington Post, the Financial Times, the BBC, NPR, and of course, we at Al Jazeera often call on him to help us better understand the region. You know, one important factor here is that the American government has put Saudi Arabia at the heart of all the important policies that the U.S. is trying to achieve in the Middle East, linking it with Israel for Palestinian-Israeli peace agreement. They see the Saudis as leading the fight against terrorism in the region. They see the Saudis as leading the fight to push back Iran. And if the crown prince is removed, then this shatters every single foundation of American foreign policy in the Middle East, at least for the moment. But it all depends on the nature of the practical backlash rather than just the rhetoric that we have coming out now. So I've known Rami Khoury for a few years now. I first met him while I was living in Lebanon as a correspondent for Al Jazeera English. He teaches at the American University of Beirut, and I'd often go to his office there. We'd hang out, drink coffee, and talk about what was going on in the Middle East and beyond. I could listen to him all day. Now, a bit of background on Rami. He's Palestinian, Jordanian, and American. And just like Jamal Khashoggi, he's been maneuvering the political landscape in the Middle East as a journalist. They had a lot in common. So it comes as little surprise that they knew each other. I got to know Jamal... Uh, initially, because I used to read some of his material now and then, and, and then we would meet in conferences occasionally. Once he invited me to go to his son's wedding, which took place in the mountains of Lebanon, and that was a joyous occasion. And we just kept in touch by email, uh, and both of us felt that it was uh, the, the best thing we could do was to stay inside the Arab world and try from within to expand the uh, parameters of liberty and pluralism in the media, what was allowed to be written, what was acceptable to be written. And and because we shared those values and those experiences, we, we uh, had a sort of common uh, professional and personal uh, bond between us. You know, Jamal walked a fine line for years in Saudi, where on the one hand, he would, in a, in a somewhat gentle way, talk about press freedom and giving Saudis more liberties. And on the other, he worked from within the royal court as an official advisor to Saudi leaders. Tell me a bit about that. It's interesting to uh, acknowledge and recognize that you can only try to work within these systems if you got along with them, if they trusted you, if they knew you. And if they knew you and trusted you, then you would be given positions of authority like he was to write a column, to be an editor of a newspaper, to start a television network. And this is something that we see all over the region. Uh, people uh, allow you to do sensitive work. Uh, in return, you follow the rules. You are aware of the red lines. Uh, so he's not trying to cross the red lines, but he's trying to push those lines out further so that there was more space within the red lines to do good journalism. Did he pose a real threat to Saudi Arabia, given the nature of what he'd been writing over the last 12 months or so? I don't think he was a threat, but I think the leadership saw him as a threat because he knew how the system worked from within, and they were afraid he might start talking about 
what's really going on in Saudi Arabia, how they govern, how they use power. And also, he started to set up a non-governmental civil society organization to promote democracy and press freedoms around the Middle East, the Arab world, and Saudi Arabia. And, and I think what happened is that he, he was transformed in his last year of life from a lone Saudi journalist calling for reform, which they could handle. They didn't, that wasn't scary to the regime. But then he became a kind of activist he was trying to mobilize and, and sensitize and organize people in many ways, and I think that probably scared them. Uh, tell us a little bit about Mohammed bin Salman, or, or MBS as he's known. We don't know very much about him because he's always led a very quiet, private life. He was suddenly named uh, Deputy Crown Prince um, about three, four years ago when his father became king. And then he uh, was able to become the crown prince, and then he amassed all state power, and not just state power, but societal power. He amassed all power in his hands. So this is an unusual situation, which again completely turns on its head decades and decades of Saudi traditions in how the country is ruled, how decisions are made within the royal family. Uh, he, Mohammed bin Salman has become the first Arab monarch who is acting like the Arab autocratic Republican leaders used to act, like Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi. Remy, one of the interesting things that uh, this whole affair has put into context is this relationship between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, that relationship. Well, I think there's two things that I would say about the Saudi-Turkish relationship. The first is that this is a, a relationship that has a lot of tension in it because both of them see themselves as playing uh, dominant roles around the Middle East and even further afield among Sunni Muslims all over the world. Uh, and the other thing I would say about their relationship is that the the Turks are masters at statecraft, and the Saudis are amateurs at statecraft. Uh, the Saudis don't know how to use power outside their country very well because they haven't done it very much. They, they work quietly based on compromise, and they use their money to reach agreement, reach consensus. Uh, so they're just not used to uh, taking their power and going out into the world and using it in a, uh, in a rough way as they're doing now. The Turks are masters at statecraft. They know how to deal with other powers. They're a very strong, self-confident country. We've seen them evolve in the last 30 years in a very dramatic way, and they're now evolving in other ways that are maybe less impressive as the president tries to take on too much power. So there are many contrasts between these two countries, but they're also competing in many ways uh, for a dominant position in the region. But I think the Turks are, are much better at this than the Saudis. Lastly, Rami, you, of course, have uh, given a lot of interviews um, about this. What's something about this, this whole thing um, you want to talk about or you haven't been asked about that, that you'd like to share with us? A final thought, if you will. I would say that the most important thing to me about this 
situation of the Khashoggi uh, killing, beyond getting to the bottom of who killed him and why they killed him and holding them accountable, the most important thing is for us to keep in mind that this is just the tip of the iceberg, that there are thousands and thousands of Arab journalists all over the region who are not able to practice their trade and who are under uh, deep, uh, strict constraints and controls by by governments. And it's not just media that's at stake here. It's It's all freedom of expression. And the worst than that is that not only do governments prevent us from expressing ourselves, but many governments are trying to control what we think in our own minds and how we talk to our children at home and how we talk privately around the dinner table. Uh, the thought control mechanisms of the modern Arab autocratic systems are really very frightening. How can we change the system? And this is what Jamal tried to do in his life, and he paid a price for it uh, by being killed. Uh, how can international concerned parties, Arabs, who are interested to do this, how can we all work together to bring about those reforms, even in a gradual manner, to bring about those reforms so people can think freely and express themselves in, uh, openly and uh, in a constructive way so that they can fix the problems in their societies rather than just ending up being like uh, sheep or cattle or robots, which is what our governments are trying to um, make of us. Rami Khoury, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that's The Take. Amy Walters produced this episode. Jasmine Bayumi and Morgan Waters produced our original episode on Khashoggi's murder, which aired last November. They had production help from Kiana Mogadam and Jordan Marie Bailey. The sound designer was Ian Koss. Natalia Aldana is the show's social media producer. Graylin Brashear is the show's lead producer. And I'm Imtiaz Tayeb. Special thanks to Linus Bergman, Salah Negum, and Rami Khoury. You can find Al Jazeera Arabic's investigative documentary on the Khashoggi murder, The Silencing of a Journalist, on YouTube. We'll be back next week.